Welcome to the Global Marketing Show, the podcast for all things international business. I'm your host, Wendy Pease, president of Rapport International and a translation expert. Come along with me today as we talk to an expert in the global marketing world about facing their biggest fears, hearing about mistakes they made or saw, discussing best practices, and sharing fun travel language and culture stories. Hello, everybody, to this episode of the Global Marketing Show podcast. As always, we are sponsored by Rapport International, who focuses on high-quality written translation and spoken interpretation. They're really good at answering your questions if you have to communicate with anybody internationally. But rather than talking about that in more detail, I am going to welcome Hakan Uzanchuk today. He is the EVP and Chief Finance and Communications Officer at Washington Institute for Business, Government, and Society. He's got a real exciting background of working at the AP and working at China Central TV. And he's a person who breaks silos all over the world. So welcome, Hakan. Thank you so much, Wendy. Thanks so much for having me here. Yeah, so you you gave me a great quote about silos, so I had to <laughs> had to introduce you that way. You want to share that awesome quote you have? Yeah, it's actually I need to make sure that it's attributed to our CEO and founder at the Washington Institute, Jim Moore, who I've known for over a decade. He says silos are for farmers, which I think <laughs> is just a fantastic line, and I know he uses this he uses it a bit, but I think it's just such a great line and it's so correct um, in the corporate world. It is. It is actually fantastic. I just, I love that. All right. So tell me what you do at the Washington Institute for Business, Government, and Society. And I just, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty excited to explore your mind more because somebody who heads Absolutely. up finance and communications is a special person. <laughs> yeah, it's, I think we're a bit of a rare breed, but I think it's because of my background from, you know, having had you know, 17 years experience in broadcast journalism like you mentioned at the AP and CCTV and then doing my executive MBA and then getting into more of the business side of things and having that kind of finance understanding and PNL management skills as well. So it's, I think it's, um, you know, we used to call that in journalism, a combination platter. So it's a, I think it's a good combination platter um, to have. And, you know, yeah, so it's been, of course, you know, like any, any organization, you know, we've had, of course, challenges due to the coronavirus, you know, the pandemic itself. So we've been, you know, very quick on our feet. We've been able to do a really great pivot going from kind of in-person events to lots of virtual events as well. So I've been focusing on that quite a bit, of course, from a communication standpoint, you know, a lot of end marketing, you know, doing newsletters, again, fireside chats, webinars, you know, we've been focusing on that quite a bit. The Washington Institute. So the Washington Institute for Business Government Society is a, it's still a startup. We've been around for about three years. It's a 501c3 nonprofit, and we focus on three things, three main pillars, which is corporate social responsibility, technology innovation, and the global economy. Our CEO and founder was Assistant Secretary of Commerce under Ronald Reagan, and then he taught at Georgetown's McDonald's School of Business for a long time. So, of course, the global economy is right, right up his alley, is his bailiwick. So that's one of the pillars. And then corporate social responsibility as being a nonprofit that is 
of course, action oriented. It's really important for us. For example, we're watching very closely, of course, what's happening at the COP26. We had a session with one of our fellows, Dr. Isabella Bunn from Oxford Analytica. She's our fellow on corporate social responsibility. She just had a session on the sidelines last week with another of our advisory council members and also a professor from Oxford focusing on everything in corporate social responsibility, governance, sustainability, all of these really important issues. And what we do is we, we're not a, we're not a traditional, we're not a think tank, so we don't publish you know pieces uh, in research papers you know every week but what we do is we convene people together but then what we focus on is actionable impact how do we create impact out of the events that we bring people together globally isn't that fascinating okay because when you were describing it i was thinking oh it's it's a think tank and you're educating and publishing but you're really pulling people together right well what's funny is so wharton's lauder institute has actually designated as one of the most 50 innovative startup think tanks in the world out of a group yeah. of like eight thousand, and so and we accept that and we're very happy about that designation but we just want to make sure that we go that kind of one step further as well and focusing again on action and impact and bringing together people from youth business, government, society, global leaders together. And then how do we focus on recommendations? For example, one of our major events that we just had in mid-September was a global sports conference, which was called, you know, Unity Through Sports, looking at Tokyo, the Beijing games coming up in the Qatar World Cup, using that as a peg to get into a conversation talking about gender equity, diversity, inclusion, all kinds of different areas. Sports diplomacy was one of the big areas. And so now we're focusing on a major impact report based out of the conference and the lessons learned so that we can say, for example, in gender equity, here's the issue that we're addressing. And then in the subsequent years, we can look back and say, here are some areas that still need progress. Here are some recommendations that we had made. And here's the kind of progress report that we're looking at it as well. So again, like something that is very actionable as well and, and impactful. And I keep on saying that word, but it's really important for us. Right, right, right. Yeah, no, it, it, it makes my parents were professors and they talked about applied research a lot. So what is it that you can take and apply as opposed to doing pure research? And there's a space for both, but it really thinks like you're you're taking and, and you know, you're doing the real application. Let's not just, just research, but why are we researching to get to where we want to go? Right. And that we what actually can have- we do? We have a fantastic university consortium actually made up of some of the biggest universities in the world, you know, the Princeton's, the Columbia's, the Brown's, the Georgetown's, the Georgia Tech's of the world. So we work closely with them as well. But to your point, then it's about bringing that together with actionable impact and what comes out of these important, you know, because get togethers, because the word convene is not quite enough, right? You need to go one step forward. Convening is really important bringing people together from business, government, society, public-private partnerships. Another area that we focus on is cybersecurity. We have a very good um, relationship with the new cyber director, Chris Inglis, who was one of the commissioners of the U.S. Cyberspace Solarium Commission. So we've done events with them. But again, in that case, some of those recommendations then went into the National Defense Authorization Act into the NDAA. We did similar work with the National Security Commission on Artificial Intelligence as well, which was led by Eric Schmidt, former Google as well. And again, there we focus on how do we bring the public and private sectors together and focusing on these issues. Okay. So there, there's a lot and a lot of different avenues that could go down to, but I want to go back to sports because a lot of people can really relate to that. And it was very interesting to me that you said global and sports and gender, because in a lot of countries in the world, women don't play sports. 
And so, you know, I, I mean, a lot of places in the world, women don't get education, but how are you looking at sports for gender equity? Like, how do you break that down and make that something right. equitable when you have a culture where it's just not accepted or done? Right. And it's, I think, um, one of our, so what we've done is in one of our fireside chats conversations that was part of the conference, we had four amazing speak about the issue of gender equity in sports. And now what, what, what has happened is we're working so closely with them. And I, what I call them is there are ambassadors talking about the issue of gender equity in sports and it applies to society. We have an amazing partnership with Wasserman, uh, who they represent a lot of the, you know, athletes, I think something like half of the women's soccer team, you know, a lot of athletes in the U.S. and globally they represent. And they have a think tank called The Collective. And The Collective's kind of core mission statement is actually focused on gender equity itself. So again, we're working with them closely. And what we decided was that rather than, you know, uncovering you know, five different issues on in gender equity, we're going to be focusing on one. So for example, this Friday, we actually have our next meeting where we're going to be talking about brainstorming about what issue we should be raising in our impact report that's going to be coming out in early 2022. We're working closely with UNESCO. They're one of our partners. and they have right. a, Okay, so you're brainstorming about what, what one of the issues would be. Give me some examples of what could some of the options be? Is it more women to play soccer? Or is it like, like how do you how do you make sure. that? Sure, it's Sure. But in Actionable. our case, it, sure. In our case, it's not just about, again, sports. It's about how that's applied to the rest of society as well. So for example, one of our partners, DC Scores, fantastic, you know, nonprofit works with the Washington Spirit and DC United here as well. Their premise is, you know, supporting especially young, young girls and boys through not only soccer, but also poetry classes as well. So in this case, it's about instilling, you know, mental and physical well-being but also supporting that with amongst girls and women as well. We've had, you know, major scandals in you know, soccer lately in the United States. So I think the time is right to actually address these challenges and issues. But I think there's some opportunities as well. You know, we have the Women's World Cup coming up in 2023. And then with the United Cup coming here, the Men's um, Soccer World Cup in 2026 in North America, I think it's a fantastic opportunity for us to address these issues and challenges, but also come up with opportunities and recommendations as well. So do you take like something like DC scores and then try to take that international? Yeah, I mean, I think that's something that we're looking at. And again, with someone like UNESCO, they have a fit fitness for life program um, that we're supporting quite a bit as well. Another one is the National Fitness Foundation that we work closely with. They are actually part of the president's council that was created way back when under President Eisenhower. And they're the charity arm. And in that case, again, it's about mental and physical well-being. And how do we support, you know, young people? And in this case, we're not just focusing on gender equity, just to be clear, gender equity is one of our chapters that mm -hmm. we're focusing on. But then we focus on diversity and inclusion. For example, the head of the International Paralympic Committee, um, Andrew Parsons, is writing the foreword on inclusivity for our impact because he was also part he also participated in our conference as well very actively so we're promoting and actually i'm speaking to a young paralympian and her family tomorrow um, she's 14 years old from uganda uh paralympian swimmer she was the youngest in the paralympics but she's become a spokesperson for the paralympic movement as well so we're going to be incorporating what she brings to the table as well so there's a lot going on in this space but i think it's inspirational too because it's the way how we can apply what we learn from sports into the rest of society as well 
Right. So I just have to mention, if anybody's listening to this and you haven't watched the Paralympics, you definitely have to turn on the next time they're on because, I mean, I'm blown away by watching the Olympics and what those bodies can do and accomplish in sports. But the Paralympics just left my jaw hanging down and speechless with with what they could do. Amazing. Um, Amazing. And, and, and credit goes to the US OPC, um, which I believe, you know, with the prices for them, they made it actually equal price now, whether you're a Paralympian or you're Olympian as well. Oh, that's fantastic. And some of the, some of the swimming times were faster than the able-bodied swimmers. It's unbelievable. You know, you imagine swimming without arms and being able to, to beat the times. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, but anyway, we're, we're sidetracking. Okay. So you're working on all sorts of global stuff. You're pulling people in and you're communicating across languages and cultures. DEI is huge here in the United States. It's, it it may not be as important in other countries. How, how do you work across languages and cultures to come to consensus on, you know, what your actionable goals are going to be? Well, it's a great question, Wendy. And as it happens, just personally, you know, I, I, I'm lucky enough that I was, you know, I lived in seven countries and I, you know, speak five languages. My mother is a linguist. I think it's a little bit genetic as well. I, I think I got the skills from her. But beyond that, we've had in our small team quite a few people, you know, who speak other languages as well, including Arabic and um, other languages too, Mandarin. So what we've done is we've been really smart about, of course, using those skill sets to be able to get in touch with folks as well. And even when we're reaching out to, for example, a major university at Sciences Po, you know, Paris, we were used one of our interns who helped me out. He's from Morocco originally, and he helped us out quite a bit, kind of getting the message out to them in that case and communicating. But you're right that, you know, DNI is important here in the US, but also I do think, you know, more needs to be done, of course, in that space. I do think that every day you're seeing a new announcement on LinkedIn and elsewhere of someone who's like, you know, chief people's officer or more and more people being announced about, you know, DNI as well. But back to your question, I think it's just about, you know, kind of just hitting it hard, making sure that people get it. I mean, Corbin, it's in our DNA. You know, what I was saying is just keep on like, you know, hitting it hard on that issue as well uh, from a cross-cultural communication standpoint as well. I think that that's critical. Uh, to be able to, but we are seeing it more and more also in other parts of the world as well, in our own work. Oh, you are. Okay. Okay. So in language, you've had internal employees that are bilingual that can help you communicate and reach out. Trilingual, bilingual, all, all kinds of folks. Yeah. That's okay. Been, we're, we're a very global organization, despite being in you know, a Washington Institute. We're also involved. We have uh, places in Singapore, Oxford, in Paris as well. We're looking at it in certain places in the Middle East as well, and also Silicon Valley, because one of the other areas that we focus on is technology and innovation again, but also kind of like the divide between Silicon Valley and Washington, D.C. as well. That's a important area that we look at as well. And there's so much going on in that space too. Oh, it's huge. So you've got employees that can reach out and do the research, but then when you gather the people together and they all speak different languages, how are you doing your meetings? Our meetings are, I mean, they're in English and because, you know, everybody does speak English, you know, fluently as well. But, you know, it's if there's anything that on the side, you know, if there's anything, emails or messages, you know, I've done them in French and Spanish and other languages, um, Turkish as well. I have a, one of our associates is actually also Turkish American like me. So we'll talk sometimes in Turkish as well. And, you know, 
even during our morning meetings, we have a morning meeting every morning. And sometimes, you know, we'll be the first two to join and we'll start speaking in Turkish and our CEO will join in uh, and start laughing as well because he won't understand a word. But yeah, it's it's a very, but you'll, you, you'll probably gathered from my background that whatever I've done has always been very multicultural, cross-cultural as well, whether it was at the AP or CCTV or now at the Washington Institute. It's like kind of bringing those different groups together in a very diverse way, in a very rich way too. And I, right. I, I, I do believe that's, you know, some of the secret sauce comes from that, right? Being able to bring together different groups together successfully. Oh, that is, that is such a skill and it is a secret sauce for achieving great things. I mean, all the research shows that. So yeah, tell me more about the, when you worked for CCTV or China Central TV. Sure. CG. Yeah, that was- TV? What, what, is, yeah. what is it called? <laughs> yeah, so, it, so it's China Central Television, but then, in which so it was CCTV America when I joined in 2011. I was recruited having worked 10 years at the AP. Uh, this is when they decided to come and open a broadcast center in Washington, alongside another one in Nairobi. Since then, they also opened another one in London as well. But in, I can't remember the exact year, but at some point there was a name change. It became China Global Television Network for the entity here in the US. So CCTV, CGTN, basically the same thing at that point. Yeah, it was a great experience. I, I spent a good seven years there, executive leadership, had a you know sizable team, really enjoyed it. I was also doing my executive MBA in the last two, two and a half, two years while I was there too as well. So it was you know um, a lot of work, but it was a lot of fun as well, bringing together different workflows, you know, from Beijing and Nairobi and DC, bringing it together to make it you know look as cohesive as possible. So what was their goal for coming into the U.S. market? Were they doing Chinese TV or were they? So this is English. This is in English, but there's different languages as well. Um, but uh-huh. the broadcast center here, you know, broadcasts in English. The idea is just to be able to basically do news, you know, just like other organizations, you know, at the time, you know, the BBCs, Al Jazeera and other as well. So they just wanted to make sure with China's, you know, opening up more and more that they also wanted to have a broadcast center here in Washington. And as I said, in Nairobi as well. Okay. Okay. So now I get it more. All right. And so... So you're original, originally from Turkey, right? I am. I am. And how long have you been in the United States? Uh, way too long. No, I'm joking. <laughs> or how old were you, you know, when you came here? I was 16 and a half uh, as a freshman in college when I Ooh, came here for, yeah. for American University here in Washington, D.C. So I've been in the Washington, D.C. area for now almost yeah, 27 and a half, 28 years. Okay, so you went through college and a lot of your career living in the United States. And so China TV comes in, Right, you're Americanized enough where you'd know like the different perspective they have. What was there any like culture conflict with how they were reporting news with how you would see it in the United States? Well, I I do think the leadership that you know, came here, especially originally, a lot of them were Western educated as well. So I think that that helped a lot to overcome, you know, of course, there were areas that, you know, there were differences. And but I think there was an, especially in the beginning, there was an openness to be able to do business. And again, there was, you know, a will and they wanted to do it, as I said, you know, from like, like the Al Jazeera's and BBC's of the world and just do it from a very global perspective. You know, and especially we did a lot of business news as well. And from, from that, there wasn't really much that they were saying, like, do it this or this way or that way. You know, we had 
a good opportunity to be able to do some really solid journalism. And what were you reporting on? So you said global news from all over, but talking about Chinese companies or what was the, why would I mean, anybody turn, tune into it? Sure. I mean, from a, yeah, yes, I mean, there was definitely global news. So if there was, you know, a ma- major summit happening, for example, the COP26, in that case, you know, whatever the number was, <laughs> right. you, know, you know, we would yeah. be co- covering that. But naturally, there would be emphasis on this year, China didn't, you know, Xi Jinping didn't attend. But at that point, you know, they'd be attending. So we'd be focusing on them, bringing guests to talk about, for example, US-China relations, or in that case, you know, Chinese emphasis on, for example, climate change and sustainability and their efforts working on that as well. So educating, you know, a um, educated, you know, class of individuals who would want to know more about China and do business in China as well. That was the target audience. Okay. Okay. And where can people find it? Like, I'd like to go listen. I'm sure you can. It's some live streaming. So I, I believe you can still go to cgtnamerica.com and you can just check it out that way. So, you know, there's when I left, you know, this was in you know July of 2018 or so, you know, at that point it was six hours of programming coming from, coming from Washington, DC. So yeah, it was, you can just go to cgtnamerica.com and watch it that way. Okay. And then tell me about the AP. Like, did you immediately right. get involved in, in global business there? Yeah, I mean, I was pretty junior when I first started. This was a few weeks before 9-11. So I had to learn very fast. And I, I didn't, of course, you know, this was very junior. I used to also bartend and in the evenings as well, just to make some extra money. But, you know, it was a very, of course, intense period of US and global history. You know, I learned very fast. I learned the ropes, but I had some really great mentors at JP as well, who kind of took me under their wings as well and helped me out in the process. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's such a global agency. It's the oldest news agency, of course, in the world. So again, with my background and what the AP stood for as an agency and providing, you know, really stand, um, solid journalism, it was very global. From the beginning, so I got I found myself, you know, not bringing only my skill sets and being that kind of globally minded person, but also everything that we did had a global touch to it as oh, well. Right, right. So you mentioned that you lived in seven countries: so Turkey and the U.S. We got two of them. What were right. the other ones? That at what point in your life did you live there? So I lived in Egypt as a kid, in Switzerland, France. It was a uh, semester abroad. And Germany, I was a kid that that was actually in the 80s. That's when the Lockerbie incident happened. And I was going to, you know, a military, oh. military school that was just part of like the base there in the Munich area. And so yeah, it was interesting times for sure. But yeah, it's just tell me more have, about that. What was what was going on? And what did you experience and remember? I mean, it was, <laughs> it's actually hilarious, because German at that time. So and actually English, so this was 1983. So I'll try to remember this correctly. So again, I'm, my, my parents, of course, are Turkish. So Turkish is my native language. And then in Egypt, I also learned, you know, a little bit of Arabic and French as well. Mm-hmm. And so by the, by the time we got to Munich, Germany, I didn't speak actually a word of English. 
I was only six years old. And so, but they put me into the American school there. And I remember the first two weeks, my mother actually <laughs> asked, I bring coming into the class as well to sit with me. But within two weeks, I, I had had enough. <laughs> and I told her that it was time for her to leave. And I started, you know, conversing pretty much fluently. And, you know, it's, it's amazing how at, at the age of six, right? You're a sponge and you just absorb everything. And I was able to kind of tell her that it's time for her to, like, that she could go home now. And, you know, I was very happy with my classmates and everything else. So it was a really good experience to be there in Germany in the 80s. Really enjoyed it. Again, the American school. Again, that's where I started speaking English. And I think what happened is in 87, we went to Turkey back home. My father's you know, term in Germany had ended. And so I went to a good, really good school in Ankara, Turkey. And, you know, my English was probably, I'm not going to say better, but it was really quite advanced for, you know, coming from an American school in Germany. So I think I was pretty cocky and not really listening too much to my teachers so, and I ended up in the principal's office quite a few times back in the day but the good thing is she really liked me so we would just drink tea and talk and she actually taught English so we would speak and she would make me speak in English which I said okay so I, I understand what you're doing you're not really punishing me per se but it was a really interesting way of you know teaching me to behave I guess yes yes well. <laughs> so I stayed there my father went was then he was a Turkish diplomat so he was sent to Algeria and then to Iran later. So because of that, I just didn't, we didn't go with them. So I stayed back in Turkey and finished high school. And then after that, I came to the States for college. Oh, okay. So that's why he went on to the other places, but Al Algeria and Iran, but you didn't go Right, there. primarily from the education, just, you know, because I was in a really good school in Turkey as well. And we just, my parents made the decision that I should just stay back. And my mother is, my mother stayed as well. And my dad was alone at the time. So I have an older sister. She had gone to France as well. She's a doctor. So it was an interesting time for sure. Yeah. So you, you've lived all over the place. What do you think <laughs> is the hard, what was the hardest move that you had? Like, what do you remember struggling the most with? With language, um, culture, making friends, you know. Sure. Well, ironically, I think my, even though I was the oldest coming to the States at the age of 16, I think, you know, that probably, even though it was college and it was so much fun and everything else, I think I had a bit of a culture shock from mm -hmm. the standpoint of, and I felt, especially in Turkey, there's a um, very kind of, I would say like a very collective mindset of, you know, everybody taking care of each other and being kind of, you know, for lack of a better word, on top of each other at times. But, you know, I, I found, you know, the uh, dorm life, my first semester to be kind of a lonely world. And I, I just had a hard time adjusting. I mean, it wasn't a language barrier. Obviously, I spoke English, you know, quite well. It wasn't that. But I think I've became much more extroverted actually later in my life. I was a bit introverted at that time so in my parents my father and of course a uh, very smart man i had um gained acceptance to a very good university in in turkey actually because we have a very um extensive exam to get into college i had gotten into it but then i made a decision to come to the states but we basically he basically froze my my entrance for a year so you could do that and just in case that I decided that, you know, the option in the, in the U.S. wasn't something that was suitable for me. So I remember having a great conversation back home uh, over the winter break. And he said, look, you know, if this is not for you, you know, you can come back and do this. And I said, no, I wanted to do this. And, you know, even though I had a hard time the first semester, I went back and then the rest, it was just an 
incredibly good experience. And I always say that's probably one of the first times I learned that any experience that you have in life, it's what you make out of it, right? So whether, you know, I'm work, I went to school or got a job later or did my executive MBA much later in life, it's about what you learn from that experience, what you can get out. And sometimes they're not always the best experiences, right? They can be really hard, but I think it really helped with my resilience and grit in life. Well, <laughs> right. it, it did because I was just having this, you know, shock, shock of just, you know, what's going on as a 16 year old. And, you know, you have that kind of like almost like nihilism, right. Of not knowing what the world is all about. Mm-hmm. But I was I was able to kind of center myself and make really good friends and and, and American University is just an excellent school as well and it's right. just so global too very international and so I made a lot of good friends and I still speak to quite a few of them as well so anyway I digress but you know it was definitely an interesting experience and even though it was later in life I found that to be more difficult than the other moves. So tell me more about the culture. So you land in a dorm, which to me is very communal living and lots of people around. Right. Yet you found it very lonely because it was a different kind of communal than what you were used to in Turkey. So, you know, explain the difference there. Right. I think it was just the mindset. And again, I think it was more on me. It wasn't on on the other folks. Again, because I was more introverted. I don't think I was making enough of an effort to go out and and speak with them as well. Whereas like, for example, in, in Turkey, I, I mean, I exaggerate here, but if you sneeze, you know, people are like, you know, going to be on top of each other. Whereas there, I just felt, you know, nobody really cares. <laughs> you know, everybody yeah. just kind of cares about themselves. But of course I was generalizing big time and I made very good friends. You know, I had a roommate and everything else in college. And it was, as I said, it was more on me and like kind of seeing what I needed to tweak myself. And that's what I came to the realization over the winter break. And when I went back, things just started changing exponentially. Okay. All right. So does I that guess make sense? It, it does make sense. And you're taking a lot on you, but there is also a very big cultural thing there that you brought out that in Turkey, if you sneeze, everybody's all over you probably saying bless you or gesundheit or whatever they say yeah. in Turkish. Yeah. What would they say in Turkish? Well, Turkish, uh, live long. Live long. Okay. <laughs> but you sneeze here in the U.S. So yeah, and, and some, nobody might yeah, say and, anything. Right. And I use the word sneeze as like, if you have a cold, you know, they're going to come and give you, you know, tea and they're going to take care of you. And I don't know, maybe it's because, you know, I was used to, you know, having my mother around and others around. So it probably wasn't just the same, right? Because I didn't have anyone to turn to as, as an adult. You know, it was, they, were, they were over the phone. Remember, it was a different world, right? We didn't have smartphones. We didn't no. have Zoom and FaceTime and everything else. And now and the world is so much more connected. I mean, my mother, I'm sure she'll listen to this later, but, you know, she hits me up on WhatsApp probably five times a day. I mean, things have changed, you know, <laughs> a lot, right? Yeah, since, then, yeah. since then, and a lot of it for the good. Right, right, right. But it also, it, it talks to, you know, the communal culture, of some countries and the independent take care of yourself American cowboy coming in. For sure. And so in a lot of the other, I mean, if you're in Turkey, 
Well, I don't know. You've, you in Egypt, you'd certainly have the communal, but you lived in other places where sure. they might be more independent, but not so as are. you're you're talking opposite ends of the spectrum. And now I feel like I'm right in the middle, and it's funny because you know, it's one of those things where if I you know go back home as well. I mean, home of course is here in the states now, but if I go back to you know see my parents or others, even then there's not a culture shock per se, but it's like it's so different now because you've gotten used to the American lifestyle and other things as well and it's just you know it, it's a bizarre feeling of you know of course this is home this is where my family is i have my girls my 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 wife is here everything else my good friends are here but when you get home you don't like in turkey you don't feel 100 percent there and here of course i feel very good about it but there's still an element in you that goes it's there's still something that's just not quite right. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to explain, I guess. But you know, no, no, I've heard that with other people that are that have lived internationally, and now you know I did as a child. And so you, where you're living is home, but you're also you carry that early childhood education and culture with you. Right. So what is what is the most different feeling when you go back to Turkey? Like what's some of the, what might culture shock an American going over there? I, I mean, it's probably just the mindset, but I, I think, you know, Turks, and again, look, I, I'm generalizing here. Oh, right? and, of course and I, it, we it's, are. It's, we're it's, playing it's, with it. <laughs> right. I'm not, I think we're, you know, in general, a bit more impulsive just more, you know, reactive. And here, you know, we always want to plan everything right in the US and things may not be as, you know, orderly if you go back. But if you like that kind of good chaos, for example, Istanbul is good chaos and you're going to have a fantastic time, you know, and as an American or whatever you're from. So, but it's just that kind of that mindset of, and especially here, as you know, and, you know, like here in the Washington DC area, you know, things are, generally speaking quite order, orderly you know things were you know trains are going to leave in the right time you know bus i mean i'm again grossly exaggerating but yeah that to me is probably the biggest kind of change that you know but if you're you know multicultural and you've traveled well and you know how to find like the the gems in each city and town then yes. you'd have a fantastic time that's what I think is so interesting about you talking about your culture shock. It was what did I need to change? And there's this right. recurring theme of people say they're not pointing their finger at different cultures to say they're different. They're saying as an individual, how, how would you describe it? What do you have to be as an individual to be able to jump into different cultures to Right. I think, I think we spoke about this before as well. For example, when I was trying to approach, I was trying to, for business, um, trying to approach, you know, people in Japan. And, you know, I, re I remember that I was having some challenges. And I remember that my RA from college, which again was a long time ago, did business quite a bit with Japan, introduced me to the Japanese Business Federation here in Washington. I met them. That opened doors to meetings in Tokyo when we were there. And, you know, again, I overcame some of those barriers by it's not just about knowing people. It's about knowing how to actually work that to your advantage as well, right? It's not just about having a network. It's about how do you then help open and navigate those doors. You did mention that cultural, to me. Cultural well, barrier. Yeah. Before uh, we started right. recording the podcast right. is that right. you were having a hard time opening the door there and you had been successful in other Correct. countries. Correct. So you had to, and so it really was relationship. It wasn't. Yeah, for wow. sure. And, and, and as you know, Andy, a lot of Asian cultures, I think, and this, you know, 
again, I don't want to generalize, but a lot of it is about faith and trust. Mm-hmm. You know, so once you establish that, I think then you have a better chance. And I think that was, you know, a lot of my success at CCTV, for example, I was able to establish that again in the Japanese case by going step by step, I was able to get that, you know, faith uh, and that trust established, which opened doors at the end as well. And I think that's really important. So it's about knowing, you know, in business culture, knowing who your audience is and how you conduct yourself in those times, right? Yeah. So how about mistakes? You've worked across <laughs> different organizations. You've seen lots of different things. What mistakes have you made that you kind of grimace when you think back to them? Or Sure, sure. I mean, look, I, I think especially, I mean, I'll, I'll just use, you know, China, you know, CCTV and like the uh, you know, experiences there. I mean, there were a lot of successes, but, you know, I think, you know, from a mistake standpoint, sometimes I think it was just what I said before. It's like looking at the other side and saying, oh, okay, they're the ones who are the problem or they're the ones who are not getting it. Maybe I just wasn't getting it well enough as well at that juncture. Maybe I wasn't using it. But look, Wendy, I mean, who we are at 25, 35, 45, et cetera, right? It's, it's an evolving process, right? It's adaptive, like leadership itself is adaptive as well. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, what I'm saying is, you know, had I known then that, oh, I can go and speak to this person who can then help me translate what this other person was saying to me, not just from a language barrier perspective, but understanding in business, I think that would have been very helpful. I did do it quite a bit, but I think there were other opportunities where I could just pull in some of my friends and say, what exactly is this person trying to say and do and how can we kind of find the middle ground as well? And I think I had a lot of successes, but sometimes, you know, it's just you try and it just doesn't happen for a variety of reasons. Yeah. Can you think of a specific example of one of those? Well, I, I don't, again, I don't know if it was a, a mistake per se. I think it was a misunderstanding. There was something that, you know, very good. One of the people who worked with me, we brought in a new technology and recommended to somebody who was pretty high up in the technology department. And it was called, the system was called the switch, but he kept on thinking it's called the switcher. So it was a definitely communication barrier, but so it took, it was just, it was pretty comical to to be in that room now that I think about that and getting to that point. So I wouldn't describe it as a mistake per se, but I would describe the problem more of a misunderstanding and we're able to resolve it, you know, after a lengthy conversation and what we were trying to do. And then there was a understanding that we were trying to do this to reduce costs actually. So at, at the end we did win. Oh, okay. Okay. And what was the difference between calling it the switch and the switcher? Well, it just didn't make any sense because the, the switch is like in the, in, in the media world, it was just something that is being used for us to be able to, again, reduce the cost and bring in the feeds in a more effective manner. And uh, switch and the word switcher just didn't make any sense. But again, I, I'm not pointing fingers at anyone. It was just like oh, one, no. exa- one example of a misunderstanding. But again, what's important, I think, is that we were able to resolve it. Okay. And so that's coming through loud and clear is, is that there can be communications, you know, language or culture issues, but you just have to stay in there and talk and build that team around you to help facilitate if there is a difference in understanding. Correct. And look, you're not going to win every time, right? Because that person, you know, either they're not going to always agree with you or they're going to take it to their own superiors and then it's still going to be shot down. So, but what's important, I think, is to be resilient and try. And to your point, having that kind of open communication pipelines. And throughout my career, that's what's something that I've worked on building. 
you know, again, bringing different workflows, different ideas, and how can we bring it together? And how can we bring that, that kind of common denominator? And how can we focus on that part? All right, so here's something interesting, because you're talking about winning in a conversation. Is this a cultural thing? Is this a sports orientation? It's, I don't know. It might even be, I'm not going to call it MBA talk. I think it's just from having an entrepreneurial mindset as well. You know, it's like, I think you're right, because if you're one team, you're not necessarily winning there, right? You're just making sure that that person has now understood your position and actually is, is coming closer to your position. But, you know, it's one of my favorite things is being able to kind of just negotiate in a strategic fashion, you know, and that's when I think winning is just in that context. Yeah. It's, win it's winning your, your own argument, right? And whether yes. that's internal to a team or whether you have a proposal out externally and you're talking to, you know, bring business in, you know, hopefully that, that's when you're winning. That's what I'm talking about. You know, I don't know if it's a sports analogy per se in this case. Okay, so it might be MBA talk. So I hear, I, I hear what you're talking. You know, I have an MBA, so I can hear what you're talking about. Is, is if you're going, if you have a solution and somebody else has a solution, and you both present, you want right. yours to win because you're probably more vested in it, and more researched in it. Correct. Correct. Yeah, it, and understanding if you don't win, see if I set myself up to think win loss. I'd be very upset every time I lost. So I'd really have to work on the resiliency. Sure. And so that's what you're doing, but with the understanding of pulling in the team and communicating. 100%. I think that's one of the things that it's interesting because it's a little different than what we were just talking about. But, you know, later on in life, I realized like one of the biggest skill sets from the AP, for example, you know, spending 10 years there, it wasn't just about, you know, day-to-day -day operations, you know, broadcast journalism, everything else. It was about storytelling and branding. Yes. If you can, if you can tell a story effectively. So again, you know, your, your, your negotiations, if you can do a storytelling, if you can tell your brand, that elevator pitch in 30 seconds, right? If you do that well, you know, you, I think you have a better chance. And then if you combine that with emotional intelligence, which some people have, of course, as you know, and some people don't, then I think you have a really good chance of being able to succeed more. How does storytelling now, you know, so I keep taking this, this these really good pieces of advice <laughs> and then trying to take it across a culture because you've had this experience being able to do that. So in the AP, you're taught how to tell a story. Right. But there can be a different way to tell a story of course. across of course. A business, let of alone course. across a culture. So how would you adapt that? Sure. But again, I think it's whether you're in the AP or whether it's in the corporate world. And I think some of this is also cross-cultural, sorry, crisis communications, right? It's being able to be very, not only reactive, but also proactive and knowing if there's something major that's happening. I think the ones, the companies that, you know, are usually a bit, you know, more successful are the ones who react in a very quick manner in a very concise manner and they tell their story really well, even if they've messed up, that here are the things that we're working on immediately. And that there's that transparency and openness and the ones who kind of hide behind and don't do it in a quick manner, I think are the ones eventually who pay the you know higher cost and toll. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's what I mean, storytelling and you know branding from a perspective of not only always growth in a company, that's important, but also when there is a crisis, how do you tell your story well? And, and that philosophy is how do you tell your story well 
communicating quickly and honestly and doing it. Now, if you think about that in the United States, that's a proven, you know, proven theory. That's how businesses who succeed do it. There's also, if you take, you know, going back to Japan, you've got to think about saving face and how you articulate that. True. So how would that story different if there's a crisis communication opportunity? In Japan, yeah. no, I, th I think it's a it's a great question, Wendy. But I, I I still think there are certain things, and I do think it's you are seeing some changes. For example, when the because we covered sports quite a bit with the Tokyo Olympics, you know there were some individuals who made some you know, and this was a high ranking you know officer in the Olympic Committee who made you know really some unfortunate comments, and he was replaced very quickly by by a female official. And knowing how in Japan, of course, as you know, it's, you know, I don't want to use the word male dominated, but it's been, you know, traditionally more that way. That was a very quick way to react to it. And I don't know in the past, maybe they would have or wouldn't have reacted that quickly. So they did. I, I do think there are certain things that are common both here in the US, in the West, and also now in other countries as well. You know, South Korea has had a lot of issues with, you know, even corporate governance and some of their big major corporations. But I think you're seeing more and more of them being able to react in a quicker fashion, which eventually helps with their brand as well. Samsung had major issues, right, with their phones for a while. But then, my goodness, look at the way that they're now dominating so much of parts of the world in sales. If they hadn't reacted in a quick manner and told their story well, I don't know if they could have done that. Right. It's not it's not just about, you know, everybody wanting to go buy a smartphone. It's it's more than that, right? Especially now when there's so many options in the world. Right, right. They still were able to tell their story well. So it's fascinating to me that, you know, you lived in all these countries, you speak all these different languages, and you're still seeing so many similarities that go across cross cultures and communications and right. leadership too. Right. Yeah, I think so. I think in leadership too. I mean, of course, I think it's so broad in general, right? I mean, there's so different ways of that you can look at leadership. But again, I, th I think the key word there, Wendy, is empathy. Mm. You know, it's when a leader has that kind of empathy, uh, whether it's in media, nonprofit, technology, wherever, and they can really instill that in their team and an understanding of it. I think that's the key word. And I, I'm seeing more and more of that. And I actually like that quite a bit in the world. And especially what came out with the business roundtable, you know, now almost like, I think two years ago, that it's not just about profits, right? We need to also worry about other things in life as well and talk about, you know, stakeholders, shareholders, all of that too. So I, I think we're seeing a change. And I think one of the lessons learned of the coronavirus pandemic as well Yes, my goodness, it's the world has gone through a very hard time. But that's why, again, the theme of unity through sports was important. Can we do that kind of thing through leadership as well? You know, having that kind of empathetic leadership that brings society together. I think we need it more than ever. That's really interesting because I've taken some leadership courses recently and they're called leadership, but they were all about emotional intelligence, which is teaching empathy. Right. And how do you take care of your people? Right. It's, you have yeah. to have that high EQ. I think, you know, I always say as a leader, you can have, you know, great will, great skill. But if you don't have that EQ, that high EQ, then it, you know, again, it's very difficult in this day and age to, you know, manage teams effectively. Yeah. yeah. And that goes across the world. I think so. 
I, yeah. I don't think I don't think it really matters where you are. I think that's important. And also, we have to understand that I do think you know the younger generation now really wants to be part of things, right? They want to be able mm-hmm. to touch and feel things. They want to be able to, and I, I'm seeing that more and more, especially in the you know my current job and my previous roles as well, where they really want to be involved as well. And I think. You know, I'll give credit to my to my wife as well. And I think she said this to me, you know, before everybody wants to also feel important, right? Mm-hmm. That they're contributing towards a common goal, whether you're at the highest level, C-suite, or whether you're in the entry level role, it doesn't really matter. It's about value. Right. You know, personal, but also towards the company's goals as well. Yeah, and that's, that probably has been a standing important element of leadership and running a business forever, but we probably broke away from that when people didn't have the long-term relationship with their company. You know, you used to go and work for a company and then retire from there. Right. You had that long-term goal and those relationships. Then when right. we went through the time period where people could job, you know, pop and they're moved around and, right. you know, there wasn't the loyalty from the company to the employee or vice versa. There's so much mobility. So it's, it's, it's hard to have that kind of loyalty, maybe yeah, to your point. That's, that's a very good point. Right. And so now people still want that to keep the mobility in there too. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's true. And I, I, I do think, you know, it's funny sometimes I feel like, you know, I sound like my parents or something like that, but you know, it's this, even with my daughters, you know, everything's accessible now. Yes. You know, it's, I mean, remember when, you know, we used to have modems and everything else and <laughs> you know, can, can you imagine the connectivity now, especially during the pandemic and like we're all relying on zoom and other measures. I mean, you know, the smartphones, everything else is like now, now, now. So that, you know, it, it does affect people and the way they think, right? Yeah. And, and then so when you're, you know, younger and maybe you're a college grad, again, you know, people might get, you know, bored more easily. But I do think there's some also lessons learned from being able to stick to something and being resilient as well. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, so absolutely. I, I see both sides of the coin quite well, I think. Yeah, and it's, and it's interesting with the younger crowd coming up or the young worker, young adult workers is, and that goes across the globe because they've all had this influx of technology through their life of getting everything now. So that makes things very current. It does. It doesn't. It's funny because when you say, when you say technology, you know, you can look at it both ways, right? It's just such a good thing, but then other areas that just need, you know, I, I don't want to use the word regulation per se, but there's just so much bad that's come out of it as well. So I think it's just, you know, it's an, again, an interesting area, especially this, this Silicon Valley, you know, DC, Silicon Valley, European Union, yeah. everything else, trying to regulate some of the te- big, you know, tech, com- tech companies as well. It's a very interesting space. Oh, yes, yes. I've sat back and watched and I can see the parallels with the industrial revolution of all the bad things that happened there, regulations that had to come out and, you know, control those. And now the tech revolution and going through the same thing. But we're getting to the end of the time. And I want to get you back uh, to talking about you. And you know, you know, I'm going to ask this question. (laughs) What's your favorite foreign word? Foreign word. Hmm. Really interesting. That's a good one. Mm, mm, mm. I mean, I, I think, you know, the word kismet, 
Mm. You know, it's which in obviously, I mean, we have it in Turkish. Uh, I think now in the in English, the kismet, right? Fate. Uh, I think that that one to me is a is a key word because sometimes again, you can do everything right in business, your personal life, whatever, but then you need that little bit of kismet on your side as well. I love that. That's so true. It's more than luck. Right. For, yeah. for sure. For sure. It's about not, you know, F-A-T-E, right? Not, you know, F-A-I-T-H, fate, F-A-T-E. Yes, 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 exactly. All right. And how about your favorite vacation? Honestly, like I've been to many places in the world, but there's something about the Turkish, you know, Mediterranean and kind of like the Aegean coast that I just... You know, it's just amazing. And we have this beautiful boat called Gulets. And just being able to spend some time on them and just kind of, you know, looking at the horizon and just on the water. I think there's nothing that I can, nothing in the world that I can replace that with. It's just oh, unbelievable. That's fantastic. It is. It is. Yeah. I've been to the, the Greek side of the Mediterranean, oh, not the Turkish. For, n- not very different, for sure. It's, it's equally beautiful. You know, yeah. and I have a lot. Of, we I have a lot of Greek friends, of course, and we do a lot of you know bickering, you know, just amongst ourselves. But you know, <laughs> it's such similar cultures and two beautiful countries. I have to say. Yeah, yeah. We threw the flew through the Istanbul airport, and I'm like, ah, oh, I, I want to get back to this country. I've heard such wonderful things next, about it. Next time. Next time. Next time. Next time. All right. And how about a memorable cross cultural experience you've had? Memorable cross-cultural example yeah, experience. Wow, <laughs> I think um, I have to go back to China. In this case, we were visiting with the senior leadership at the time at CCTV as well. And you know, culturally, there, you know, not only are you having a, you know a very good dinner, like amazing food. I mean, for those who haven't been to China, it's just I mean the the cuisine there is just incredible. But it's about you know, also in that case was about having, you know, a certain amount of adult beverages as well. And, you know, a lot of drinks for going across. And I think I had at that case done quite well, apparently. So one of the senior leaders, you know, told others was like, that one, yeah, he's like us, he can hang out with us. <laughs> <laughs> and to be the, for the record, you know, I'm not like a, you know, a big drinker or anything like that. But I said, look, you're part of this, you know, you have to be you know, let go and have fun. And it sure was a great experience. And I think, again, back to, you know, the point of faith and trust, you know, whether you do it through over food. And I think food is one of the biggest kind of, again, right, denominators that bring us together culturally as well. Uh, so that, I think that, that was a great experience. Oh, that's great. That just must warm your head, your, your heart when you think back to, to Absolutely. that dinner and feeling, yeah, he's, he's good. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. It was I love a good experience. That. Yeah. And I'm surprised at the number of stories that have come up about around drinking on the podcast and oh really you know yeah because <laughs> here you might somebody might come and visit American business and they just see them during the day and they might not even go out at night and they're certainly not expected to drink but in a lot of countries that is expected and I think that's really good to to remind yourself it's part of global business I guess it is it is a delightful time any final recommendations for people who are going to do global business I think one of the words that I really focus on quite a bit is the word strategy. I think it's um, a really critical word. And coincidentally, 
or not two of the areas where during my MBA that I did really well was strategy and advanced strategy. I just really enjoy it. And I think what whatever you do, you know, in, in the business world, I think having that strategic mindset, sometimes it's easier said than done, right? Mm-hmm. But I, that to me is, it might be one of my key words in business is just, you know, laying out a strategy, laying out a plan, making sure that, you know, even if you do a proposal, a pitch, whatever you want to do, that you know what the value prop is. It's, I always try to look at if I'm the person who is receiving this, what are they thinking about? What is the value about it? And, you know, how do we make sure that this is a win-win, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not for only for the business that I'm, you know, working for, but also how does it look like that also is a win for them as well? So strategy to, for me, I don't think you can conduct any business domestically or globally without having really good strategy. That to me is key. That is a really good point. And that was well said. Nobody else has really come back and said that. But, you know, whenever I talk about starting your global venture or your global marketing is, is always start with strategy. And so I like that. And particularly the win-win where you're looking at it from their perspective. Right. Yeah. Thank right. you. Good words of advice. Now, how can people find you or learn more about the Washington Institute if they're sure. interested? Sure thing. So washins.org is our website. We actually are, you know, as a 501c3, we have, of course, uh, Giving Tuesday coming up. So we'll be participating in that quite a bit as well. So there'll be more on the website, on our social media. We're on Twitter, on LinkedIn. They can also find me personally. I'm on LinkedIn uh, quite a bit as well. And, you know, I have a you know, pretty good network there too. So they can find me on LinkedIn and anyone else who wants to get in touch, you know, it's um, hakanosanjak at gmail.com is my email as well. I don't mind giving that out as well. Okay. And so do you want to spell your name slowly so people can find you on LinkedIn? Sure. It's H-A-K-A-N. Last name is O-Z as in zebra, S-A-N-C-A-K. Mm-hmm. Hakan Usanchuk. Okay. And so find him on LinkedIn or his full name at gmail.com and Washington Institute.org. Uh, Washins.org. Wash, W A S H I N S T. T.org. That's correct. Dot O-R-G. Okay. Correct. So correct. that definitely looks like something to to follow. Well, thank you so much, Hakan, for being on today. This has been a delightful conversation. So thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me here, Wendy. It was lovely to talk to you. Thanks so much. So, and listeners, thank you for listening. I hope you learned something today. Remember, silos are for farmers. So break down those silos across those borders and and develop a strategy for your global business. And go ahead and follow the podcast and give us a five-star rating or share it with somebody you know. We're all over the globe now, so people are, are finding us and listening to us. We'll see you or talk to you next time. Thanks so much for listening. That's a wrap for this session. A big thanks to you for listening to the Global Marketing Show. Hope you had just as much fun as I did. New sessions launch weekly on all places you find podcasts, Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and of course on our website. If you know someone interested in this topic, please tell them about us. Au revoir for now.